Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It was a dramatic day in Venezuela yesterday. We're going to talk about what changed and what didn't with David Smildy from the Washington office on Latin America. He's a senior fellow there, and he's a professor of sociology at Tulane University. Thanks for joining us again to talk about Venezuela. David Smildy. Thank you for calling, Jerome. You know, I wanted to take a step back uh, from yesterday and kind of recall where we were at before yesterday. Uh, We were already at a place where there was another self-declared president, where there was no recognition of the Maduro government. Um, There were a a lot of things that um, yesterday was just like the day before. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, I think there's been uh, a pretty big overestimation of what yesterday meant, you know, because already all of these countries uh, did not recognize Nicolas Maduro as the president of Venezuela, and what changed is that they now recognize Juan Guaido as as interim president, but Guaido still doesn't really have any power. I mean, I think it has has an, has implications for diplomatic relations, basically. Uh, for uh, you know, this means that Huaydo can name ambassadors to these countries, and Huaydo can can receive these countries' ambassadors himself, and so it has that implication. But beyond that, it's not really clear. I mean, there there is one one big elephant in the room, and that is that you know Venezuela has a lot of assets abroad. In the United States, it has Citgo, it has refineries on the Gulf Coast, it has uh, um, you know. It has loans that it, and, and debts as well, and so there's a whole set of assets and and debts that Venezuela has in the United States and abroad that presumably would go to the hands of Guaido if these countries recognize Guaido as a legitimate president. Well, then he would be able to control those assets. But what that actually means, you no, know, I think that that was going to have to filter through courts for a while. And even if these assets were to uh, be credited to, to Guaido and the National Assembly, uh, you know, they don't have a central bank. They don't really have institutions through which they can distribute this money. So it's not like they can really form a viable parallel government. Well, yesterday's uh, actions, it seems like a, a gigantic effort to up the pressure. And it certainly ups the danger for a lot of people. I mean, if I were in the Working in the U.S. Embassy in Venezuela, I don't know if I'd feel particularly safe right now. The uh, I don't know if I was Juan Guaido, I would feel particularly safe right now. You would, I assume, if you're Maduro, you would want to arrest this person. What are the implications of what happened? Yeah, I mean, it does. That that is the most significant change is that it really ups ups the pressure on Maduro, ups the stakes for the opposition. And and for a lot of countries around the world, so I mean, this, this is a, a they're they're playing they're playing their their most powerful cards here, and it's not clear where this is going to go. Guaido himself, as far as I can tell, nobody really knows where he is right now. He's tweeting and he's making statements and whatnot, but I don't I don't see that he's in a public place. No, uh, yesterday Nicolas Maduro said he was breaking all diplomatic and political relations with the United States. Uh, and you know, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo responded that Maduro is not recognized as president and can't do that. They only respond to Guaido, and Guaido said he's maintaining relations with the United States. And so apparently the the embassy employees are staying put. I, I suspect that they will they will bring home all non essential employees. But the the idea is that they're going to keep keep the charge of affairs there in in the 
in the U.S. Embassy in Venezuela. I, I don't think that Maduro is going to act against them because, you know, the, the U.S. has been very clear in its threats that if, if, if Maduro tries to do that, that they will respond accordingly or they will respond, you know, in kind. And so I don't think Maduro wants to mess with that. But, you know, apart from that sort of little micro spat, it's not, it's not clear beyond that uh, what's really going to happen uh, that's important here. What is the logic of all this from the U.S. side? Um, there's a lot of conversation about what this means in Florida, and Marco Rubio apparently has been driving and endorsing a policy like this for some time. Did these guys just get what they want, and what is it they want? You know, there's two sides to this. Obviously, Marco Rubio has, as you said, been driving a lot of this policy. Florida, of course, is the most important of all the swing states, and Trump won it last time. And I think, uh, you know, they're going to do anything they can to try and appeal to different constituencies in Florida. Uh, and Trump also has a bunch of other really complicated issues on his hands, including the Russian investigation. And so having some sort of foreign policy win, looking powerful and decisive, I think, is, is quite attractive for this administration. The uh, On the other hand, you know, uh, a lot of this is actually being driven by what's going on on the ground in Venezuela. You know, Maduro was elected in a uh, in, in an election that was fraudulent, and back in May, that very few countries recognized, and he took uh, he was sworn in for his second term uh, last week on the tenth of of January, and so that was kind of a, a breaking point because a lot of the countries said, well, "Okay, well, Maduro was president." Uh, they didn't recognize that election, but he's not the legitimate president, you know, in this new term. And so that sort of brought it to a crisis. And, and the, the opposition also who has this new leader, this new president of the, of the National Assembly, uh, who was recently sworn in, a person who's young, that is a new face and, and has some pretty good rhetorical skills, uh, you know, challenging Maduro. And so the confluence of this, Maduro assuming power in a second term that's not recognized by the international community. Juan Guaido, assuming the National Assembly presidency, has sort of come to a head. And Guaido is saying that the constitutional articles that are relevant to the current situation make him acting president. I'm talking with David Smildy. He's a professor at Tulane University and a senior fellow at the Washington Office on Latin America. And we're talking about Venezuela and what happened yesterday in Venezuela and the crisis there. It seems like the idea of Marco Rubio and uh, the Trump administration is to bring pressure on the military in Venezuela to break with Maduro. And there's a lot of conversation about that and whispers that there are people in the military who don't like what's happening now and want to see something different. Is that a, a legitimate aspiration to break the military and break him away from Maduro? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's uh, um, you know a logical way to think about this, and I think you know that's that's what was the gamble yesterday. That, and I think it was very clear that that the opposition, the U.S., and the other countries had um, coordinated that Guaido would swear himself in as president, and that he would immediately be recognized by all these other countries. And I think the hope was that having this president recognized by everybody in the region would get the military to say, okay, we have a new commander-in-chief. And in fact, after he did that, there was a several-hour uh, period in which the military said nothing. 
uh, the Minister of Defense. In fact, when Maduro went to the balcony of the presidential palace and gave his speech, a very defiant speech about U.S. imperialism, uh, the Minister of Defense was not with him, nor was any of the high command of the military. But after that speech, they did indeed come out. First, they tweeted uh, with some support. It was not exactly effusive, but it was support for Maduro. And today there are videos of them, uh, you know, with much, much more enthusiastic, broader support for Maduro. And so I think, you know, I think it was a reasonable idea. And, and, uh, and I think, in fact, there was some discussion within the military about whether they were going to support Maduro, because as I said, it was not immediate. But I think in the end, Maduro got past that hump. And I think, uh, you know, it's not clear what, what, ha- what happened there. But I do think that in the past two days, U.S.'s position, while I think recognizing Huaylo was a reasonable thing to do, you know, all the chest beating around it, you know, the Mike, Mike Pence released a video saying he supported Venezuelan people. It was a very, very uh, you know, a video that made a big splash in Venezuela. It released that on Wednesday. Yesterday, Marco Rubio made statements. Trump made statements. Pompeo made statements. Uh, the National Security Council made statements as well. I mean, all this chest beating around this basically made this into an issue between Venezuela and the United States. And that's that's the that's the ground that Maduro is much more comfortable on. No? I think when he has a big demonstration, a massive demonstrations yesterday, you know, against his presidency, and in this case they were cross class. There were many people from the popular sectors, in other words the, the lower working classes that were participating in these. Maduro's not comfortable. I mean I think that's that's much harder for him to deal with. But when he can when he can frame this as a battle between the United States in Venezuela, well, then that's much more comfortable terrain, and I think that could have had an influence in the military sticking with him. And if you hadn't heard a clip from our vice president, here it is. Nicolas Maduro is a dictator with no legitimate claim to power. He's never won the presidency in a free and fair election, and he's maintained his grip of power by imprisoning anyone who dares to oppose him. The United States joins with all freedom-loving nations, in recognizing the National Assembly as the last vestige of democracy in your country, for it's the only body elected by you, the people. As such, the United States supports the courageous decision by Juan Guaido, the president of your National Assembly, to assert that body's constitutional powers, declare Maduro a usurper, and call for the establishment of a transitional government. As you make your voices heard tomorrow, on behalf of the American people, we say to all the good people of Venezuela, estamos con ustedes. We are with you. We stand with you. And we will stay with you until democracy is restored and you reclaim your birthright of libertad. When you hear the vice president talking like he did yesterday, um, it brings to mind what the Venezuelan people really want now. Do they want the United States to force this person in a coordinated effort with other countries from office, or do they want uh, something different? Um, I imagine you know there's a lot of talk about um, what the poor now want in Venezuela, and the poor is almost everybody. If you've got 80% of the homes that don't have enough food, you've got um, a lot of people who are going to be disgruntled and against the administration. Do they appreciate what Mike Pence has to say? Well, you know, I think I think um, 
uh, you know, if you listen to Pence's statement, I don't think it was an unreasonable statement. I just think the timing of it and sort of the visibility of it was was not what was necessary at the moment. I think the symbolism of it made it into an issue between Venezuela and the United States. I think the Venezuelan people, 80% of the country uh, rejects this government. Over 70% don't want Maduro to finish his term. And I think people are desperate and really want a change, you know? And I think they're not, uh, there's not big, strong concern about external imposition per se. I think people just want relief. But what that imposition looks like or what that involvement uh, looks like, I think, is important. I, 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 I published a piece to, a couple weeks ago with data showing that even if a military intervention got rid of Maduro, the majority of Venezuelans would oppose it. You know, the majority of Venezuelans would support, however, some sort of negotiated settlement that would, that would lead Maduro to leave power. You know, so I think Venezuelans, what they want, they want to return to democracy. They want a government that they actually vote into power. No, but they want that to happen through some sort of political settlement. I don't think that they're necessarily opposed to foreign countries being involved and in, involved in that kind of negotiation. I think they would welcome that, but I, I think it's it's quite clear that uh, uh, a clear majority would would oppose any kind of military intervention. Is the problem though that there's been attempts to have those negotiated settlements of this uh, situation every other year? It seems like, and they've all fallen apart. I, I think the Vatican went at it once. Yeah, that is that is exactly the problem, and I think there's there's a real skepticism. I think with good reason for for that kind of negotiation. In fact, if you ask if you ask the survey question whether you think there should be dialogue. It's incredible. A majority of respondents, a majority of Venezuelans say there shouldn't be dialogue, you know, because they associate dialogue with two sides getting together and talking and discussing their positions and not leading to anything. If you say, should there be a negotiated settlement leading to Maduro's exit, then a majority of people support that. You no, know? but of course you can't get there without dialogue. But the point <laughs> is that people, you know, they don't want to see people sitting around and discussing it. They don't, they don't, they're not. They don't want to hear any more from Maduro or from, you know, uh, about what's going on. They want some sort of solution to this, and they prefer that it's a negotiated solution. I want to ask a question about the countries that support Maduro, uh, particularly the powerful ones like Russia and China and Turkey. Um, what, what are, if they want to see this guy stay in power, do they have to up their game? And it's not like Russia hasn't been upping its game. It's um, given a lot of loans. It's put uh, some warships out there. Uh, uh, do they have more stuff that can keep this guy in power? Well, I'm not a Russian expert, but I do think that it's, it's interesting that China has been largely silent in recent weeks on this, whereas, whereas Russia has been speaking up a couple times a week. No, Russia seems to be much more supportive than China is. But the thing is, Russia just doesn't have the resources and the money to really support Venezuela. They've done what they can. China seems to be a little tired of, of supporting Venezuela. You know, it's put $60 billion dollars. Uh, of loans into Venezuela, and they've seen a lot of it get squandered, and so I think they're they're a little tired of of, of throwing money into Venezuela, and they've also received quite a bit of criticism for it. Turkey is sort of the new person on the block that's a big ally with Venezuela, and they're they're putting together food cooperation. All these governments have in common that they're to one degree or another authoritarian, and they see 
you know, themselves as allies and allies that they can support and say, well, we support non-intervention in part because it helps them with their own local populations, you know, uh, especially Putin. You know, if he can support these other countries and be non-intervention, well, that's well, that supports him uh, in his statements against people trying to intervene in Russia. You know, so it certainly makes sense. And, you know, this is foreign policy. And we in the United States know about this very well. You know, the United States supports dictatorships, supports uh, Saudi Arabia when it's in national interest. And so I think it's, it's logical that Russia, China, Turkey and Venezuela are going to do the same. It uh, seems like there's uh, some real options right now on the table for Maduro and for Guaido. Uh, what are you thinking is going to come down in coming days? Because people are talking about the uh, possibility of violence, uh, all sorts of violence. Uh, what are you What are you looking for? Yeah, I you know I really don't know. It's hard to know who's going to sort of move first because th- things were moving so fast yesterday that it was hard to keep up with. And then by last night, they just kind of stagnated. And so uh, I think we could be, you know, a stalemate for the next couple of days. Um, we'll see. We'll see, you know, the big, the, question, the big questions are, is is the Maduro government going to try to act against Guaido? Is it going to try to arrest him or other people from, from the opposition? No, I think, is the Maduro government going to try to dislodge people from the u.s embassy if they don't leave within 72 hours no i think uh is is the trump administration uh going to do things like try to assign or say venezuela has right or guaido has rights over sitco i mean i think all those are big question marks probably the most interesting thing that's going on now is that in in the region mexico did not recognize why though neither did uruguay and they came they put out a joint declaration saying that they are willing to participate in any kind of mediation negotiation efforts also the european union met for several hours yesterday afternoon to try and figure out what to do and they came out they did not recognize why though also or or either as as president and they have been saying for for weeks actually for months that they are interested in a contact group and trying to do high-level contacts with government and with the opposition. And so, so, you know, there's there's that uh, going on, and that that could lead to a break in in what looks like a stalemate at the the moment. Do you take the Trump administration's threat of all all things on the table of violence, of uh, military action, is that serious? Yeah, I, I always take it serious because, you know, it's it's something I, I just remember back in 2002 when George Bush was saying that, you know, we were going to invade Iraq. I was one of those that that thought it was funny. I thought it was a joke. You no, know, it seemed so ridiculous that uh, Saddam Hussein would have anything to do with 9-11. But uh, we saw what happened. And so I think once this ball gets rolling. There's so many interests. There's so many people involved that are that that are interested in this kind of military conflict that it can break out really quickly. And I think, especially with a president that's in a situation like Trump, that he has the Russian investigation, he has all kinds of problems, and he has a re-election coming up. And so, um, you know, it's a time-honored way of sort of boosting your popularity and changing changing the topic. So I I don't I don't I take it seriously. I don't think that people in the administration really want to do this, but. But I think, you know, once that ball gets rolling, it can happen. And I think there's there's a there's a consistent underestimation in the United States about what military intervention means. Time and again, we think that it's just go in, 
you know, get rid of a government and go out and everything's okay. But actually what what we've seen in Iraq, Somalia, Libya, you know, is that it actually usually means an extended occupation. And that in itself can lead to huge problems and, and, and a lot of violence after an invasion, which itself leads to a lot of death and destruction. David Smildy is a professor of sociology at Tulane University, and he's a senior fellow with the Washington Office on Latin America. He curates their Venezuelan politics and human rights blog. Thanks a lot for joining us, David Smildy. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll learn a few things about pre-colonial Africa. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Most people don't know much about pre-colonial Africa. If that's true about you, a new exhibit at Northwestern's Black Museum of Art is likely to blow your mind. Caravans of Gold opens tomorrow and runs through July 21st. Curator Kathleen Burzak is here. She's Associate Director of Curatorial Affairs at the Black Museum. Great to have you with us. Hi, Jerome. It's really, really good to be here. Thank you. Tell me a little bit about medieval Africa. What about it is going to blow our mind when we go to this exhibition? Well, I think that people are going to find things out about the medieval period that they've never um, imagined before. Um, a, a world that was much more interconnected, much more global than is the general um, perception, I think, in um, the public. And um, really seeing what Africa's role in that was. And I think that what we've learned over the years that we've been working on this project is that a lot of people don't put the words medieval and Africa together in their minds. And we're giving them op- an opportunity to see why, in fact, they should be thinking about those two things at the same time. Now, I think the crux of it is that the Western Sahara was um, at the center of global trade at the time. This was not a, a, a fluke. This was a deliberate thing that was going on. This was a really important um, trading thoroughfares that ran through the Sahara Desert at the time um, that was being generated um, because of a strong interest in the gold resources that were found just south of the Sahara Desert in parts of Western Africa. So um, the rise and falls of empires in this period of time were um, being carried out basically on this economy of gold. And then along with that, of course, traveled many other materials, but also people and ideas and um, religious practices. And that's what the exhibition is looking at. And you can see actual objects from all this period and all these people when you come to Caravans of Gold. You can. It's really remarkable. We've been working for over seven years with partners in Mali, Morocco, and Nigeria to um, select loans um, and to um, 
tell this bigger story through objects. And so what people are going to see when they come are actual um, archaeological fragments and works of art from the medieval period that are on loan from lenders in these three African nations. And then they're juxtaposed with other objects from um, Western museums to open up um, the imag- our imagination about what this period of time looked like. Give me an example of some of the things people will see. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the most wonderful things that somebody's told me about the exhibition is that it brings together things you never would expect to see together. And um, so, for instance, we have um, um, a beautiful gold filigree bead from um, Egypt or Syria. And this is a form of bead called biconical. It's like two ice cream cones put together at their wide end. And it's all um, just golden filigree open work. And um, it's from the 10th century um, in Egypt. But then we have that juxtaposed with beads from the 19th and 20th century made in West Africa. And so by looking at those things together, we see how a form and some and techniques were circulating in the medieval period and then have had this long legacy um, into the present day. Another really exciting example is that we have some of the greatest works of sculpture from the medieval period from the country of Ni- the present day country of Nigeria. And one of these iconic works is um, known as the Tata Seated Man. So this is an almost life-size figure of a ruler sitting in a very naturalistic pose, and it's made of um, almost pure copper. And we believe that that copper um, came from the um, Alpine region of France and came down, that raw copper came down through Saharan routes all the way into the forest regions of Nigeria, where it was used for making cast copper sculpture, among other things. So we have then juxtaposed that with an ivory figure um, because what was on the other side of that exchange was ivory moving northward across Saharan routes into places like North Africa and Sicily and Italy and France, where it was being used to make the Gothic sculpture that many of us are very familiar with. So we have loans of some remarkable ivory um, figures of the Virgin and Child, boxes, um, ivory panels. And we ask the question that it seems so obvious, but w- that we rarely ask, which is where did that ivory come from? It's, uh, it is the mind-blowing part of this to think of all these different kinds of goods going back and forth. And um, right. there are people who are doing the trading. And I know you um, create and give us uh, some people to, to think about. Um, mm-hmm. Mansa Musa. Who, who is Mansa Musa? So Mansa Musa is... Um, and uh, was a hugely important person in this period of time. He was the king of the empire of Mali. So in this region known as the Western Sudan in West Africa, there was, just like many other places in this world, um, empires rising and falling through an eight or nine century period of time. The empire of Mali um, in the um, 13th and 14th centuries was really controlling this access to the gold resources. And Mansa Musa, as the empire of Mali, uh, as the emperor of the empire of Mali, is perhaps um, thought to be the richest man ever in the history of the world. He's um, He um, became a Muslim and he made a pilgrimage to Mecca. And this pilgrimage is well documented in Arabic sources of the period. And um, 
some of these descriptions include descriptions of things he was given or things that he purchased, as well as the actions he took, how much gold he distributed so that it affected um, the economies and, and the, the, the sort of price of gold at the time dropped because of the way he was saturating the market. He was and the so Saudi Arabia of gold. He was he was the <laughs> Bezos or the Bill Gates of gold. Somebody. He... Um, so he, this description includes um, types of things he was given, silk and gold thread textiles, um, a Damascene sword. And what we've done is we've taken that description and we've brought together objects of the period that are like the ones he must have encountered to, again, open up our imagination about what this time looked like. Um, it, it, you know, it's really interesting to go back, and I imagine most people you meet don't really know much about this period, and, and, and you can uh, fill them in. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's a really important thing for us to do, to think about the long past, and um, to fill in, you know, history is a living thing, and our understanding of it changes all the time, and um, when we have an opportunity to um, correct uh, misperception or to bring a story like this, which is well known in historical circles, but um, isn't perhaps as much in the mainstream of our idea of a past. Um, we think that that's really um, critical work. I'm talking with curator Kathleen Burzak, and we're discussing Caravans of Gold. It opens tomorrow and runs through July 21st at Northwestern's Black Museum of Art. Uh, so what do we there are interesting parallels to today, actually. I mean, you mentioned uh, design parallels, but there are all sorts of things about immigration and uh, trade and exploitation that we can that we can all learn from and apply to today. Absolutely. So, um, one of the things that we've been doing is developing. Um, um, working with partners to create curriculum for um, teachers to have access to. We think it's hugely important for um, people today to be thinking about the history of Africa before the Atlantic slave trade, before colonialism, um, and that school kids should really have um, that full picture in their heads. Um, it, it can have an impact on our um, uh, our interactions with um, colleagues, our global colleagues um, today. So we think that that's important. And, of course, we hear stories um, that are um, in the news all the time about people moving across the Sahara Desert as migrants today or across the Mediterranean. And it's often posed with a very kind of short view idea of um, boundaries and of um, um, borders. And this story um, makes us realize that there has been movements across the century, uh, across the Sahara Desert for um, centuries, even millennia. Um, and in fact, um, one of the chapters in the companion publication to the book um, addresses how um, movements across the Sahara today are still following um, these same routes and um, have many different kinds of precedents. 
Now, you've got some really interesting things going on this weekend. The exhibit opens tomorrow at the Block Museum of Art. And then this weekend, you've got um, a couple of big things going on. What's going yeah. on? Yeah. So we um, have been working, as I said, with partners in Mali, Morocco, and Nigeria. And we have a number of visitors from those countries here, um, the directors of institutions, and um, we're going to be um, who are going to be participating in the opening. And then we have a program on Saturday that will begin at 2 p.m. The museum opens at 10. It's free and open to the public. Anybody can come and um, and participate in seeing the exhibition. There's going to be some live music by a chora player. And then at 2 o'clock, we're going to have a program where um, I'll be speaking and um, the director of the National Museum of African Art, Gus Casely Hayford, who is a specialist on the history of the city of Timbuktu and its visual culture, he'll be speaking. Um, the novelist and um, cultural critic, um, Chris Abani, who is a faculty member at Northwestern, will be be speaking, and then we'll be having a conversation together about some of the key notions um, in the exhibition, the history, but also the idea of the, archeolo- the archaeological imagination and the importance of fragments in telling this story. And that conversation, once again, is at 2 o'clock at the Pickstagger Concert Hall, so you are it in is. a great big auditorium. We, we with, have with lots of space. Of space. Please come people. down. That would be an amazing uh, thing to have and see. That's a great conversation. And people, um, the exhibit itself, it, you mentioned your partners, the Smithsonian, and uh, mm-hmm. it's going to travel to the Aga Khan Museum in Toronto. It is. It, it's, it's, a, it's going to be a big deal. Your eight years of work on the exhibit have, have paid off. They have. You know, it, it's super exciting. Um, as a campus museum, a university museum, we're really de- dedicated to pushing the envelope on the stories we tell in museums and um, using the art the art museum as a place for people to come into touch with with history and um, the way that art history can animate the past for us. And it's thrilling when um, important colleagues like the Aga Khan Museum in Toronto and the National Museum of African Art on the Mall in Washington, D.C., um, want to um, take the exhibition that we've created and present them to their prep their publics. And I imagine your partners in Morocco and Mali and Nigeria are thrilled to see this uh, th- this exchange happen. Um, it's been just a, an unbelievably rewarding experience. I've um, in the past eight year eight years I've made nine trips to Mali, Morocco, and Nigeria. I've hosted the Black Museum. And I have hosted four scholars meetings, and there's a huge number of people um, across disciplines and across areas of expertise who've been really investing in this project. And um, it's just wonderful to see it coming together like this. And it's a great opportunity for people in this area to to go to the Block Museum, and they don't have to go to the Smithsonian and see it. That's they can right. Go to the Block Museum. Here. That's right. I mean. See it here first, um, you know, <laughs> and again, the block is free and open to the public, so it's a wonderful opportunity. And you only got a little bit. We did the story earlier this week about uh, the exhibition having some problems with the government shutdown. Yeah, we did. We had um, um, we have 23 loans from the National Museum of African Art in the exhibition. And, of course, when the government shut down, many of our colleagues there have been furloughed. And it was touch and go for a while about whether or not those loans would be able to be packed and transported here. We actually ended up canceling the first um, truck that had been booked to ship the loans. Um, We missed that. um, But they were able to get some special um, 
permission for um, employees in a certain um, with certain funding to go in and pack the objects and bring them to us, and um, we were able to get them installed in time for the opening. So um, we're we're really grateful for that. Well, congratulations on the exhibit. I can't wait to get up there and see it. Yeah, the Northwestern Block Museum of Art and their Caravan of Gold exhibit opens tomorrow and runs through July 21st. And once again, uh, there is an open house on Saturday from 1030 to 1, and then at 2 o'clock, a panel discussion at the Pigstagger Concert Hall. It's been great meeting you, and thanks for the effort. Kathleen Burzak uh, is the curator of the Caravans of Gold exhibit. Thanks a lot for joining us. Jerome, thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about a film series on Cuba. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. There's a chance to see Cuban films and talk about them this year at a Cuban Vision film series. This unique series starts tonight with films on racial inequity and class in a changing Cuba. It's at the Athenaeum Theater here in Chicago, and with me is Alexandra Halkin. She's a documentary filmmaker and director of the America's Media Initiative, and she programmed the Cuban Vision film series. Thanks for joining us, Alexandra. We're old pals from your work with the Chiapas Media Project years ago, and we had you on the Global Activism Series. And I've seen some of your Cuban films that you've been flirting with over the years. Um, what, what to explain your interest in Cuban film and filmmaking and how you came to this film series. Thanks, Jerome, for having us today. It's a pleasure to be here again. Um, yeah, I, I actually started working in Cuba in 1991 when the, the special period was, was very um, strong. Um, that was after the Soviet Union fell and had a very um, detrimental effect in Cuba. And um, I had been filming in Cuba at that time. And then I worked in Mexico for a number of years and developed an educational distribution network with the films um, from the Zapatistas. And so I started going back to Cuba in, in 2009, and I was invited to a film festival, and I saw a number of independently produced Cuban films that had no international distribution. And I thought, well, why don't I try and get these films distributed outside of Cuba? And that's when I decided to form the America's Media Initiative that focuses on work with uh, independent Cuban filmmakers that live in Cuba. Now you figured, uh, why not just have a film series? Why not just go right out there and you're going to every other month now uh, show Cuban films and have people talk about them? Yeah, I've done a number of different programs. I've I've curated um, at Documentary Fortnight at the Museum of Modern Art. I've done film festivals, but... But stuff like that is usually pretty short, and it's just a couple days. And I really thought it would be a great opportunity to do an actual year-long film series with films that are rarely, if ever, seen in Cuba and use the films as a starting-off point to discuss themes that are universal between the United States and Cuba that affect the citizens both in Cuba and in the United States. Explain what you mean when you say the films are not uh, seen so much in Cuba. What, what kind of films are we talking about here? Well, the films are not seen so much in the United States. Um, 
Cube films, Cuban films are seen in Cuba. Right. Um, <laughs> okay. They may not be on Cuban television, and they may not be in Cuban film festivals, but people are really good at passing films around on a flash drive, or there's this thing called the paquete, which is one terabyte of um, films and internet websites and all different kinds of stuff that is circulated every week in Cuba. And a lot of Cuban filmmakers who want the Cuban population to see their films will put their films in the paquete. Um, well, let's talk about what you're doing tonight at the Anthenaeum Theater, and you've brought your guests who are going to take part in the conversation with you. And the theme tonight is racial inequity and class in a changing Cuba. And with us is Monica Rivero. She's a Cuban journalist and is the editorial director of On Cuba News. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you for having us. Um, well, tonight we are going to see uh, Canción de Barrio, which is a documentary I worked in. Um, it was filmed um, from two, 2012 to 2014 or so. Uh, and it's um, it's about a tour of a famous Cuban troubadour, Silvio Rodriguez. And it was tempting, the um, fact of join, joining him um, through the tour, but we wanted to answer the question, why is Silvio Rodriguez interested in going to these uh, communities? Because the, um, the tour um, wants to make um, a focus on communities and neighborhoods that are mostly uh, outside of the cultural centers of the city. You know, it's like uh, the more poor neighborhoods, mostly in Havana, but also outside Havana. And we wanted to answer why is a very famous um, artist that have raised the highest uh, scenarios in, in the world wanted to come to these communities? Why? What's the answer? I'm dying to know. <laughs> I guess you have to see the documentary. <laughs> he cares about class. He's, he's interested mm -hmm. in inequality. Yeah, it uh, we were always uh, before the concert because um, we went to the communities um, about four or five hours before the con the concert took place and talked to the people in the in the places. Uh, we showed uh, how what are their dreams, what are their frustrations, uh, how do they live. Uh, we we took a a time for observe their homes, the way they they lived in a in a word, right? So that's the fact, uh, and that's why you can you can tell you can try to answer that question through seeing how these people live, how is their day life. Also with us is Odette Casamayor Cisneros. She's an associate professor of Latin American and Caribbean cultures at the University of Connecticut, and. Um, now, uh, Afro-Cuban people, um, they, there's a kind of a the government and has a unique approach to them. Uh, what, how do you how do you uh, talk about that in a film series? What is going on in the film series about uh, what uh, about the Afro-Cuban community? Well, as you will see probably in the in the documentary, uh, many of the interviews and many of the um, people living in those places of m the majority of the uh, neighbors that were interviewed were um, um, or are Afro-Cubans. And uh, it's, it shows that um, the majority of people living in, in bad conditions in Cuba 
are black Cubans. Uh, it's not something new. It's something that is happening since the, we will say, since the birth of the nation. What's going on is that right now with the critical economic and political and social conditions in Cuba, all those uh, um, racial inequalities, not only racial inequalities, but uh, it's probably the most visible inequality that we can um, address in the, uh, and we can um, 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 uh, rela- uh, see in the movie. Um, are, so are those inequalities are, 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 are more important right now. And uh, uh, it's, um, it's, it's from history. It's, uh, uh, it's, uh, the roots of, the, of this are, of course, are in slavery. And the main question would be how is it possible that uh, a socialist system that has been in place and un- that implemented um, um, equality uh, um, in measures trying to uh, um, uh, to implement some e- in equal in quali- equality in Cuba? How is possible that after more than 50 years we still have racial inequalities, clear racial inequalities in Cuba? And uh, it's something that, uh, well, unfortunately, we cannot address in only one documentary, in only one discussion. But at least the documentary is um, is showing it, and uh, it's, it will be clear for the viewers that there something has to be done in Cuba in order to avoid the contest or to to stop this uh, those inequalities. Uh, the title of tonight's discussion is Racial Inequity and Class in a Changing Cuba. Is is Cuba really changing that much? Is there that much uh, change in the economic system that is going to start addressing inequality? Is is it going to uh, – you're, you're saying no already with your head. <laughs> <laughs> well, from my point of view, yes, there is a lot of changes in Cuba right now. This has been happening since uh, 20 years now, let's say. Uh, in 2006, uh, for instance, it was possible to uh, for Cubans to uh, have uh, private pro- uh, property, which was something uh, unthinkable before, but it's something that is actually uh, increasing inequalities because what we are experiencing right now in Cuba is uh, this, um, the the um, the development of um, um, a wealthy class, really wealthy class, and then the, in the other side, the majority of Cubans whose uh, um, 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 living conditions are always uh, are worsening. And uh, so I, I would say, yes, there is a, a lot of changes, a lot of transformations in Cuba, but unfortunately not for the best. Um, Alexander, do you want to weigh in on this? Um, you know, I I prefer to have Cubans speak about what's, what's going on in Cuba because I think they're the ones that really know um, because they're from Cuba. Um, you know, I, I'll just speak about why I wanted to show this film. Um, I think this film is really unique. It's very rare for documentaries to show this kind of situation, um, especially in a feature documentary um, and a feature documentary that was produced with somebody like Silvio Rodriguez, who lives in Cuba, who's a renowned Cuban musician. The fact that he made the decision to produce this documentary and the book that Monica and Alejandro worked on, I think, says something about his concern about what is going on in Cuba. Um, Monica, do you want to say something there? Yes, I agree with Alex and Odette. And I just, 
indeed the fact that the the tour had begun in that date uh, was because um, it was a political discourse of opening of economic flexibilization uh, and then it's a, it was a way of saying hold on a sec uh, there's a, a big com Cuban community that's out of this uh, train of progress that it was supposed to be uh, Going, uh, going, yeah. <laughs> it's like we don't uh, we don't get to this um, even if it's small opening uh, of the economy of the possibility of have um, private property in the same conditions. So uh, it was the right moment to look at those who cannot join that that move. Now, this is just the opening folly of the film series. Uh, and explain what's going to happen. It's going to happen every other month, and you're going to take up a different topic every other month. Yes. Um, the next s film and discussion is going to be March 1st, and it's about LGBTQ rights and gay marriage in Cuba. We're going to be showing a number of short films by Afro-Cuban queer filmmaker Damian Sainz, And um, he's going to be present along with Norge Espinosa, who's also an LGBTQ activist and playwright Amazing. and author. Um, so that's the next um, series. And then in May, I don't remember the exact date, but you could check online on the Athenaeum site or on um, the AMI site, um, will be uh, Economics 101, which is a film called uh, The... The Unique Story of Unlucky Juan, which is kind of a hybrid documentary, which looks kind of breaks down the situation with the Cuban economy. And hopefully we're going to have the director there along with a Cuban blogger, um, Harold Cardenas. And it, it sounds amazing. There's going to be emerging women filmmakers in July, revolutionary aspirations. Where are we now in October? And the personal is political in November. So that's that's an amazing thing you're doing there. Well, I, I hope people check it out. It's at the Athenaeum Theater, and you can see tonight a film on racial inequality and class in a changing Cuba, and take part in the discussion afterwards with our guests, Monica Rivera, Cuban journalist, director of On Cuban News, and Odette Casamayor Cisneros, associate professor in Latin American and Caribbean cultures at the University of Connecticut. Thank you both for joining us. Enjoy the uh, film and the discussion tonight. And it's been great seeing you again, Alexander. Halkin, documentary filmmaker and director of the America's Media Initiative. And for more information, people go to the American Media's Initiative website or the Athenaeum Theater. Yep. Thanks a Thank lot for so joining much, us. Thank you so much, Jerome. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.